Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli with RestaurantOwner.com. I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, we're going to be presenting a story of a family development of a restaurant concept, years of operation and expansion. Our guest today is Mason Ayer, and the concept is Kirby Lane. So, Mason, thank you so much for joining us here on Corner Booth. My pleasure. Hey, Mason, we talked a little bit offline just a a few seconds ago, and one of the things we like to do with this uh, podcast is, you know, get the human side of the story, and and sounds like yours is very interesting. Could you kind of tell us about Kirby Lane, the concept, and you said your parents started this, and now you're leading the charge. Can you kind of give us some background on the concept, why that particular concept, and your particular journey to where you are now? Sure. Well, that's that's a lot to unpack there. Well, I'll start with with Kirby Lane itself. Um, we are a full service, family oriented restaurant known largely for breakfast, though we do operate all three day parts. In fact. Up until the pandemic, we were operating at most of our locations 24 hours a day, uh, which was a big, important part of our brand. We, we've since scaled that back a little bit for the reasons you'd expect, staffing, business coming back. But we serve all three-day parts, and it's it's generally a beloved, iconic Austin concept that's been around for, let's see, how old am I, 42? It's been around for 42 years. And that's actually that's a good segue into the genesis of, of Kirby Lane. It was started by my parents in May of 1980. I was born in December of 1980. The original location was actually in an old 1930s bungalow on, appropriately enough, Kirby Lane in Austin, Texas. Uh, and we actually lived in that house for the first couple of months of my life because, you know, we're restaurant operators. We don't have any money. Um, so we could have a restaurant and we could have a home. And we had a restaurant that happened to have a garage apartment. And so that's where I spent the first couple months of my life living. So in, in a lot of in a lot of ways, I quite literally grew up in the restaurant business. Mm-hmm. From there, uh it's it's been it's been a family business through and through for the last 42 years. To this day, we don't have any outside capital that's been invested in it. Our values are very much around family and taking care of our guests, taking care of each other. And it's just generally a pretty fun environment to be in. Uh, in terms of my involvement, I, I actually never expected to find myself in the restaurant business. Many Truth don't. Because, well, and <laughs> yet we're here. Yes. Um, I'm a recovering attorney. I ended up going to school for, um, I ended up going to law school and I practiced corporate and securities work in Austin for almost three years. I really didn't enjoy being a lawyer. It's It was monotonous and the people I was around we're not particularly happy. And, and then beyond that, I didn't get a whole lot of satisfaction at what I was doing. I mean, I felt like I was basically a transaction cost where I was helping move money from one big company to another big company. And then we kind of wipe our hands clean, clean of it and go on to the next deal. And, and there really wasn't anything that was terribly satisfying about that. So in 2010, the, the height, well, close to the height of the Great Recession, I was looking to do something else. And unfortunately, my opportunities were really limited. Um, Workforce today uh, probably doesn't remember the days where it was hard to get a job, but those days did exist even um, even for professionally educated people. And so I didn't really have the option of lateraling to another law firm. And there wasn't a whole lot in, in the corporate sector that was available. And so I looked to this family business that I'd been a part of growing up. And it ended up being a pretty good fit. At the time when I came in, we had four locations all in Austin. We had a motley crew of people and still do. In fact, that's a big part of our brand identity. And we had a great reputation. Kirby Lane had been around for 30 years at that point, consistently voted best breakfast in Austin. And so I stepped into a situation where I had this great brand that I got to play with. And, and what was, I guess, exciting slash terrifying 
was at the time, my parents were, neither one of them were terribly active in the business. In fact, my mom was living in New England at the time. My father was living in New Mexico most of the time. And so I stepped into this situation having, you know, I was an attorney, but I didn't know anything about running a, a, a company. And I certainly didn't know anything about running a restaurant business. And I've always described it as something of a baptism by fire. Uh, on day one, I was expected to make decisions. And it was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I actually would argue that I still sometimes don't know what I'm doing, although I do know more than I used to. And so I stepped into the situation with a good brand and largely good people. Going back to the whole Jim Collins principle of get the right people on the right seats on the bus. And that was really what the first couple of years was about is getting the right people in the right places and getting rid of the people that didn't need to be there. And unfortunately there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of churn initially, but it was necessary churn. And in, in a sense, I would say that with the team I developed and have worked with, we kind of grew up as a company. We, we went from being, a mom and pop in the truest sense of the word to being legitimate middle market business. And so with got, without going into too much detail, the, the last 10, 12 years has been quite a run. We've grown a ton. Um, we have 10 locations now. Uh, we should be opening 11th by the end of this year. We are very prevalent in the Austin market, but we also have a location in San Antonio and a location in between Austin and San Antonio. And culturally, we've expanded and 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 uh, really articulated and spread the values that make the company what it is. And it's just generally been a real success story, and I'm real proud to be part of it. That's amazing. No, there's so many pieces of that that I know our listeners would probably uh, profit from. Uh, there are people that we know that get into the business from other industries, you know, as you did. Uh, many have that feeling of I'm excited, but I'm also terrified. You know, you did. Um, however, many may not have had, I think, that analytical approach of start with people. And it sounds like, you you know, you you learned that before you jumped into the industry. And that's a good lesson. It's a people business after all. So if you needed to analyze people, structure people, some stayed, some didn't, okay, uh, then you had your team and then you started your growth from four to 10 sounds wonderful, uh, especially since th they were all not uh, perfect economic times. So my question would be, how do you decide or say, how did you back then decide on when to grow, where to grow, uh, find a location? Uh, what were you expecting when you were growing this business size of store, amount of investment, any of that you like to share? You know, looking back on it, I feel almost embarrassed as to how we approached things. Um, I didn't know enough about our business to really even understand some of the decisions I was making at the time. And I mean, I, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that, that, early on, we made some bet the company decisions without realizing we were making bet the company decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, the year I started, um, again, it's 2010, not the best economic times to your point, Chris. And uh, I wanted to grow. I felt like it was it was what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be a caretaker for four restaurants that were that had been operating for for however however long prior to that. And so yeah. we identified some real estate in South Austin um, that wasn't too close to existing real estate and ended up signing a, a lease, which was an expensive lease um, and went ahead and signed up a GC and spent a million dollars on a build out. Again, I didn't understand just how big of a risk that was we were taking when we were taking it. I think if I understood that, I probably would have been too scared to, to make that decision. But again, going back to the brand itself, we yeah. had such brand equity in Austin that we were able to open this fifth location, which was the first, by the way, in 11 years. It was the first additional location since 1999. And we got it open. We got it built. We got it designed, put our very, very, very best management at that location. Um, that was a decision that, that again, I think sort of sort of backed into where it was like, okay, well, I don't really know what I'm doing. So I'm going to put the people who really know what they're doing, both front of house and back of house in that location. 
And sure enough, it ended up being a it ended up being a tremendous success. And and not just not just in the sense that it was economically successful. It was a success in the sense that it really established the model for what we wanted to do moving forward from a food quality perspective, from a service perspective, from a design and architecture perspective. Uh, people don't people don't necessarily talk about this that much, but the way a restaurant's built really matters when when it comes to creating profit. And we built this restaurant in a really efficient fashion. Um, there's not a blind spot in the entire restaurant. There aren't dead ends in the restaurant. You can see the entire floor um, from the kitchen window. And once we had that model down, that really dictated everything else we've done since then. I mean, in, in one capacity or another, every location we've opened since since that location we opened in South Austin in 2010 has been modeled on that location in some way, shape, or form. Um, and so it was really this, this paradigm shifter for us. And it, it was this aha moment for me and for the team around me where it's like, we can really do this. Um, it's not easy necessarily, but mm -hmm. we can, we can take this model and we can plug it in in other places and we can, we can maintain these same service standards and we can maintain these same, uh, profitability, uh, levels. We, we can do this in more than one spot. And, and, and I think it was a real watershed moment for us. And it was this realization that, you know, we can do more than what we're doing and we want to do more than what we're doing. What I find very interesting about your comments, you know, we, we talk to other um, operators um, who, like yourself, have been able to uh, expand the operation, the concept to multiple units, and you've gone to 10. But I don't remember anyone talking about it in terms of the design, in terms of operational efficiency, in terms of architecture that somehow um, makes everything work better. You know, we've talked to a lot of people who say, well, you know, we'll just get the best real estate in the best location possible. And it may mean one unit's going to be real big, one's going to be small, and we'll just make the concept, you know, work and replicate it. Beyond the operational considerations of the design, if I go from one Kirby Lane to the next um, on a some long trip, what about the menu, the concept, other elements of the experience will I notice um, being consistent from place to place to place? Well, so one thing I want to point out um, is that we're not Chili's, we're not Cracker Barrel, we're not, we're not Applebee's. We don't want our restaurants to all look the same. Um, in fact, we want them to have their own distinct feel. That's been an important part of the design aesthetic. Uh, even if architecturally, it's sort of the layout is similar, um, we want each to have its own personality and character. The menu is uniform across the organization. Um, you're going to get the same menu and uh, the same food pretty much consistently across all locations. I, I will say that one of the things that is unique to our operations is we prep virtually everything from scratch. Um, there's very, very little that we get that's out of a bag from Zisco or Benny Keith. Um, there's a couple of items like hollandaise sauce. We just don't want to mess with making that ourselves. But for the most part, we we prep everything from scratch. And I know as CEO of the company, I'm not supposed to say this, but I really like that I can go into a Round Rock location and try the cilantro lime dressing there. And it tastes a little different than the cilantro lime dressing in our San Antonio location. And what that tells me is, well, we're making this ourselves and and there is gonna be some variation. And, I, and again, I know I'm not supposed to be saying this as somebody who's ostensibly in charge of quality standards, but, but the fact that there are some differences tells me that our operations are more complicated than, than what you'd get at a big chain. And, and that's a really big important part of who we are. Now, Barry, to your point about what are you gonna see, what's gonna make each location unique, 100% without question, it's our people. Our people are colorful. Um, our people are their own selves. We don't give our servers scripts or ask them to upsell particular items. A big part of who we are and who we've always been, and I inherited this from my parents, is 
we're a little quirky. Um, we're a little weird. Uh, and we've always been that way. When before everybody other than me had tattoos, um, we were hiring people that were covered in tattoos in the 80s and 90s. And that was something that was a, a defining characteristic of us. Um, so our, our, our personnel was just a little a little rougher around the edges than what you'd find at a Starbucks or a, or a Chili's. Um, and to this day, we really cultivate this idea of, we want you to be yourself. We don't want you to hide your personality. We want you to show off your personality. Now, there are some constraints. Um, we need for you to wear appropriate attire. Um, we need for you to not be rude to our guests. In fact, we have a whole lot of work that we do around guest service and what that looks like but we're also not going to force you into a into a pigeonhole and say you have to do these xyz things we want you to provide a high level of service while being who you are as an individual and i think that's a really important defining characteristic of who we are and who we've always been with that type of culture and as as freewheeling as you make it sound but it it doesn't seem accidental would it um does that help you in terms of hiring I would imagine, I'm not sure, but I would imagine that if the reputation of your business is, hey, this is a pretty good place to be. I don't, I I can kind of be who I am. You really got to work here because this is, this is kind of a fun, um, non-judgmental zone for me, for you to, to spend your time, your work life. Does that help at all? Well, so I'll go back to what our core purpose is as an organization. Um, this is something that we developed within the last 10 or 12 years. And as an organization, our core purpose, our North Star is to be a place where everybody feels welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's who we are as an organization. And we mean that in terms of our team members. We mean it in terms of our guests, in terms of our vendors who are in inside the four walls of our restaurants. Um, and so it's really important for us that the people that are present within Kirby Lane do feel welcome. As far as hiring goes, I mean, you know as well as I do, the last couple of years have not been easy. And this this even predated COVID. Um, hiring has been really, really challenging um, across the board for, for quite some time. Now, I will say that in the last six months to a year, things have, the labor market has loosened up a little bit. And we've been able to be a little bit more selective in who we, in who we tr- choose to bring in as opposed to you're a warm body, show up tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but what we do see is we see people who will join us from a big from a big corporate chain where they don't have that autonomy. They don't have that level of managerial respect for them as an individual, the way the way we practice. And, and then after that first person comes over from the Olive Garden, we see a flood of their friends coming over. Um, because they do like the environment better. Now, at the end of the day, servers are going to go where they can make the most money. Um, and they do really well with us. Um, our servers do extraordinarily well. Um, even, even when we have relatively small sections, our volumes are, are high enough that servers can walk with a couple hundred bucks, um, on only a couple hours worth of work. And I think at the end of the day, that coupled with the the autonomy we encourage um, really helps with with the type of team member we're able to attract. Yes, and and see, and I have heard this. I have, uh, uh, well, my brother lives in Austin and eats in your places for breakfast. Um, I have friends in Austin that were very happy when I said, you know, I'm finally talking to the guy at Kirby Lane. Um, and people will say that, that, that it's usually busy. I can understand people working there, as you mentioned, if you like the environment and you feel like you belong but then in addition to that you also know you can make a pretty good living yeah that does help well congrats on that uh, and that you you ha- are known in the industry or at least from those that I've been talking to in your you know local community uh, as a place that is just that uh, once the employees get in they'll feel good they'll make good money it's hard for them to leave let's switch gears now from staff to product because being voted quite regularly best breakfast in a city, you know, that maybe 40 years ago was a little lean in the tooth for variety. 
But in the last decade, it's really grown into be a major mecca, actually, for, so for pretty darn good food. Talk a little bit about the menu. What are your specialties? Is there, uh, are there uniquenesses that you and your family have developed that obviously are, are sort of the holy grail that could never, ever change now? Well, I'm going to start with a, a quick story. Um, in 2018, the city of Austin had this opportunity to send a time capsule to the surface of the moon aboard a SpaceX rocket. And they wanted to send items in that time capsule but that truly represented Austin. And so among the items they chose to include was uh, our queso. So we, we manufacture and package our queso and they ended up including a little eight ounce, eight ounce package of Kirby queso that um, went aboard this SpaceX rocket to the moon. Now, full disclosure, the rocket landed on the moon, but it crash landed on the moon. So um, I'm still claiming to be the only restaurant in the world that has a menu item on the moon, uh, whether or not it landed there safe and sound or not. Um, and, and the purpose of that story is um, we've done some things over the years that have really contributed to the the reputation of the business. We're known very, very much for our queso. We're known for our breakfast, for our pancakes. Um, one of our signature dishes that we sell, um, we sell the heck out of is a dish called Eggs Francisco, which um, appropriately enough, it was invented by a cook named Francisco. And it's an English muffin with uh, tomatoes, avocado, bacon, and then uh, lathered with queso on top. Um, Anytime I anytime I suggest someone go to Kirby Lane for the first time, I will point them towards Egg Francisco and a cinnamon roll pancake. And while perhaps not the healthiest thing in the world, it's certainly delicious. Um, the other piece that is really important for us, I mean, and I and I we harp on this all the time, is is value. As as Austin has exploded as this food mecca, I mean. When my wife and I go out on dates, it's like I feel like you have to take out a second mortgage for for these these meals at these chef driven high end restaurants, and that's what's opening in Austin. Um, for us, our average price per person, they're paying about thirteen bucks, um, which is which is very very little um, in the grand scheme of things. I, I, I was at some conference. I can't take credit for this. Um, but early on in my career, I was at some conference, and there was a gentleman from McDonald's who was talking about the back of the envelope equation for value. And he said, value is equal to experience divided by price. And so McDonald's is able to offer value. Well, the experience is not Trulux, um, where I know, Chris, your brother uh, had been for a long time. The experience is good enough that when divided by the price, you perceive value. And that's right. something that's stuck with me for a long time is we need to provide a really good experience at a modest price to where we can create value for our guests. And I think at the end of the day, the reason we continue to be voted best breakfast at Austin is because we're offering food that is high quality yet affordable. We're not, we're not the, and I'm not meaning to pick on anybody in particular, but we're not the four seasons that's offering $25 French toast souffle or whatever the case may be. I mean, you can get in and out with a really good cup of coffee and a really hearty breakfast for, for less than $15. And I think that really resonates with people. Um, and as Austin's grown, I think that being able to maintain that value has been an important part of our success. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, Barry, we hear from time to time. That's why I'm really hoping our listeners will make note of this. I think we hear from time to time sort of a wrong uh, definition of value where operators will bring up needing to be more value-minded, but they immediately think that means lowering the price. And as you so well pointed out, value doesn't necessarily mean cheap. I mean, cheap means cheap. Value means being, you know, worth, worth. And so if you are creating an experience that is worth what you, you know, called an affordable price, that's very value conscious. And um, and I would think that that price range that you mentioned, that's a very fair uh, price range to be in. No, it's not fast food cheap. Uh, but then again, your experience is so much better and so much higher uh, than than that too. So yeah, being value-minded, and it sounds like you're very flavor first with your food items. 
And uh, those are things that I would I would think that listeners need to make a note of if they're you know expecting to um, have their concept last long and also expand it. And I think our readers uh, might want to take note. Um, Austin is the fastest growing metro in the country right now. I keep track of that because I'm in the second fastest growing metro. <laughs> I'm very interested, though, um, the upsides and the challenges of being in the midst of what I understand. And please correct me if, if, I, if I'm not following the news correctly, Austin's tremendous growth in popularity. Well, I'm really mixed on it. Um, I'm a native Austinite. I've seen it change a tremendous amount over the last 40 years. Um, I think as a, as a place to do business, it's a it's generally a really good place to do business. Um, I think it's a beautiful city, although the summer times are pretty brutal. Um, but in terms of the growth we've experienced, I mean, we've experienced a lot of growth over the last decade, but in particular, during COVID, we saw so many people relocate from the coasts to Austin. Um, and I think part of that's the fact that we discovered that you could work virtually. And that's not something that uh, that we understood until the pandemic forced that on us. Yeah. And and what's, what's happened is uh, we've experienced an affordability crisis. I mean, we are in an affordability crisis. There's no ifs, ands, or buts, buts about it. Um, Housing prices have gone through the roof. Uh, rental rates have gone through the roof. Um, there is a, I guess for lack of a better word, the average consumer in Austin is a lot fancier today with more refined tastes than what existed 10 years ago. And I mean, quite frankly, we've been we've been impacted by the proliferation of restaurants and transitioning population in Austin. The people that used to be our regular clientele have been forced to the suburbs um, because they can't afford to live in Austin anymore. I mean, when I was a kid, it was very much a central Austin was a very much a blue collar working class community based around the University of Texas. And that's changed. I mean, we are a tech city. We are, um, I mean, our airport's growing astronomically. And so we've seen some radical changes. And as a result thereof, up until fairly recently, our sales were impacted by it because every chef in the country said, Austin's the place I want to be. I'm going to go open there. And they have, and they did. And I mean, we have a oversaturation of restaurants and I don't think all of them are going to last. Um, I think we will. Um, well, I'm very confident that we will. Um, but in the meantime, I mean, there's a real fight for share of stomach and, and we've seen our sales impacted by that. Now, I will say for our business, given the value proposition, given the price point, um, economic slowdown is not necessarily a bad thing for us. Uh, it's it's um, historically we've been somewhat counter cyclical, and so it's when expense accounts are at their very highest and people have the most disposable income, it's when people trade up from us and go to the Ruth's Chris's of the world and, and these other higher end concepts. But as expense accounts get rolled back and people have a little bit less disposable income, they're trying to feed their families. Well, you can go to, you can go to Whataburger and go through the drive-thru and get burgers for your family or for not that much more money, or in some cases, even less money, you can come in and get a, a meal with a server in a warm, welcoming environment at Kirby Lane. And we're seeing that. Um, over the last couple of months, we've seen our sales tick up from, from prior year sales. And again, I can't exactly put my finger on what's causing that, but I am happy to see us where we are today and, and doing the kind of volumes and um, creating the kind of uh, uh, EBITDA margins that we're creating. Can you discuss a little bit uh, about how you've probably had to skew and modify co the concept a little bit because of... Um, buying habits changing, uh, demands, technological advances, how that's impacted operations, how I'm sure at one time Kirby Lane's to-go program was uh, over the phone and a hostess wrote it down and somebody had to walk in. And of course, now you've got third-party delivery, I imagine. But, but could, could, yeah, could you talk about how a very established brand can stay true to its initial core, but how you have to adjust to those types of things when they occur? Sure. Um well, I will say that 
we were very fortunate. Um, we quite literally got all of our online ordering rolled out company-wide the week before the COVID shutdowns. And so it just sort of coincided that we got that all wrapped up um, right when we needed to get it wrapped up. Uh, as your listeners know, um, third-party sales or even to-go sales are not nearly as profitable sales as as in-house sales. Um, from a from a food quality standpoint and from a guest perception standpoint, we'd so much rather have our guests dining within the four walls of our restaurant than having eggs that sit in some Uber Eats driver's back seat for 20 minutes before they get there and die in the back. Um, but the reality is third party is here. It's not going away. Um, we see it. I mean, we track our third party sales every period. And, 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 and actually, I'm very happy to see that as a percentage of sales, they, they, continue, they continue to tick down as a percentage of sales. Um, but again, it's not going away. Uh, and so we've done what we can to adapt. Um, we, have, we have a robust online ordering system through Olo. Um, I don't want to go too far into the technical stuff, but Olo has been a really good partner and it, it works well with our point of sale system. Um, we have partnerships with DoorDash and Uber Eats and, and they generally do a pretty good job and they do a good job of taking care of the guest when things go wrong. And to me, that's actually the most important piece is if something goes wrong, whether it's our fault or their fault, the guest needs to be taken care of. And, and I think that with both of those, with both of those organizations, they've done a pretty good job of that. Hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, our goal is to get as many sales within the four walls of our restaurant as possible. I mean, that's, that's the best possible sale we can have. It's the best way for building brand loyalty. It's, it's the best thing from an economic perspective. Yet there are these these changes that have occurred in the market that we we can't ignore. We can't bury our heads in the sand and say, "Oh, well, you know what? We're just not going to do third party delivery because we don't like it." No, uh, no you're right. Do it. Customers demanding it. Con- convenience is just getting to be too uh, I don't know too commonplace, and it's too important. So I think you're right. I think you're approaching it well. Do any of your units have like private rooms? Do you do events or community meetings or any of that kind of thing? You know, we have, and some of our units do. Um, I mean, there's <clears throat> there's community groups that meet it at some of our locations in the mornings, but that's not a big part of our business. Um, I mean, the the biggest part of the, our business is the families and business people who are coming in for an affordable meal. That's that's where most of our business comes from. So, bar, liquor, um, beer, wine is that part of the mix at all? <laughs> Good question. Oh, that's a loaded question, and I uh, I'm. Glad that my my ops team isn't here to uh, to listen to this answer. Um, we've tried so hard to push alcohol sales over the years. I mean, we've developed a robust bar program. We went from having beer and wine only at most of our locations to having full liquor licenses. We brought in alcohol consultants to come up with fancy bourbon drinks and this, that, and the other. And at the end of the day, our clientele is is coming to Kirby Lane to eat food and drinking is a, is a afterthought uh, right now our our product mixed with um, alcohol is about 4% of sales. And the vast majority of that 4% is comprised of bloody Mary mimosas and margaritas. Um, and, and those are sold on Saturday and Sundays. Uh, we actually just launched, I mean, literally yesterday we launched a happy hour Um I'm, I'm, our PR firm is very convinced that it's going to be successful. I, uh, I've been doing this long enough that I'm a little bit cynical and I, I, I fear that it won't be, but you never know. I mean, this PR firm that we're working with is really good and, um, they're putting a lot of for- force and resources behind it. And, you know, maybe they'll surprise me, but I feel like what's the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I'm a little concerned it's going to fall into that category. We talked recently to another relatively young um, operator who is uh, has expanded into a number of units, um, and and like yourself, he's people first. Um, he uh, puts a lot of time and effort into developing his staff, and one of the things that he had told us is that he he's put a lot of 
bets in terms of expansion on entertainment in addition to food, which um, is part of the guest experience. And I only bring that up because Austin is a, at least in my experience, having been there, is a huge music capital. Yep. That is not part of our model. In fact, our model is more after you're done at the bar, come come sober up with us at three o'clock in the morning. Um, <laughs> and we're just yeah. now transitioning back to 24 hours. And, and that's that business has taken a long time to rebuild. But the hope is that especially for the more urban core-based stores, we're not going to have the live music at our locations, but we're going to be the place that um that you can come afterwards and eat pancakes and and enjoy a good meal while you're sobering up a little bit. Um, you know, it's funny it, that reminded me of something that we had this experience recently. My family and I went to the original Chewy's. Um, I'm sure your listeners know that Chewy's is based in Austin or yeah. started in Austin. On Barton Springs, I think. Isn't uh, that, yep. That, uh. That's exactly right. On Barton Springs. And so we went there. Um, it's the first time I've been to that particular location in uh, in years, actually. I mean, we go to Chewy's a lot, but hadn't been to that location. And I had these memories of going to that location as a kid. And there were a couple things that really stood out for me. And one was that they had a photo booth, like a black and white old school photo booth where you could go and take pictures with your friends or family. And then they also had one of those claw machines. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. That comes down and grabs a stuffed animal. Yeah, sure. And they, and they had a salsa bar. And so I was really excited. My my kids are young. I have a three-year-old son. And I was really excited to, excited to show him the claw machine and do photos with him in the photo booth. We got there. And none of those things were there anymore. Uh, oh. They'd been replaced with seating. And, and it's like, that was part of what made Chewy's what it was. That was part of the quirkiness and personality of that restaurant. Now, am I going to stop going to Chewy's because they don't have those things? Absolutely not. I think Chewy's is great. I think it's a great concept. I love their food. But it was really disappointing to not have those things. I thought, if only I had my own restaurant where I could put those things in, and recreate some of that Austin quirkiness. And so as we think about brand and we think about who we are and who we want to be, um, I think things like that are really interesting. And I think things like that actually drive business in, in one capacity or another. Uh, I, I don't ever want us to be a place that is buttoned down and and you know follows a checklist on every single thing we do. Now we have plenty of checklists. Um, mm-hmm. But I think being able to add things like that, which I've been pushing for that, I've gotten a little bit of pushback from from various people, but we'll see how it ends up. I think it'd be really cool to have a photo booth so that the people that are there after the show can go and um, take pictures or what whatever it is they do. Um, so I think about those things a lot. And I think about us as a brand and how we want to position ourselves in this ever-changing city. And I want to hold on to some of that keep Austin weird because no one else is really doing it anymore. How do you market? Uh, I guess that's a pretty good segue since you want to help keep that feel, that uniqueness, uh, that there is a local quirkiness to the city. Uh, I would agree with you as the city's growing larger and more cosmopolitan, it's a little harder to find. But you've got a very well-established brand. And I'm just wondering, what is the marketing strategy? Uh, you mentioned PR company a moment ago. I'm thinking, do you have an annual plan of community involvement or PR the or it does some type of advertising work how do you do it well historically we've done almost no marketing uh historically word of mouth has been the only marketing we've needed um this harkens back to an earlier point which is the trans the the population in austin has transitioned so much over the last 10 but really three to five years that there's a whole group of people in austin who don't know who we are anymore um or don't know who we are period and so we've really had to go out and spend marketing dollars to put ourselves front and center in the Austin restaurant landscape. Uh, what does that look like? Well, it used to be doing ads on KUT, uh, the local NPR station, uh, and we'll still do that occasionally. But I don't think that that's probably the best use of marketing dollars. So one of the things that we've been working with our PR company on is getting ourselves in prominent Austin places. Um, as you may or may not know, Austin recently got a soccer uh, club, Austin FC. And this past year, we signed an agreement with the soccer club and the stadium to be the official queso partner of Austin FC. And so what that means is 
And during the games, they'll flash our logo and our info up on the Jumbotron. But we also have a queso stand very, very prominently positioned at right when you walk into the stadium. And to me, that is the best type of marketing we can do because we're getting our, our brand in front of pretty much the coolest show in town right now. Yeah. Um, it's it's the hottest ticket in town. And so we're, we're trying to have more of a physical presence in in venues like that. Um, when the airport contracts come up in a couple of years, we're definitely going to try to get a presence in the Austin airport. Beyond that, and, and Chris, you alluded to this, we've always done um, community involvement work, whether it was back in the 80s. We were, I know we were doing March of Dimes. Uh, that was something that my mom led. Um, so more recently, I've, I mean, I serve on a bunch of different nonprofit boards uh, from Habitat for Humanity to United Way. Uh, but we've actually established this past year um, an actual, like a structured philanthropic program called Kirby Kindness. And so what we do with Kirby Kindness is each quarter, we select a different nonprofit that aligns with our values. And a portion of our special pancake sales ends up being donated to those nonprofits. So thus far, we've worked with a group called Good Work Austin, which is an advocate for service industry jobs and um, the, for lack of a better descriptor, humane treatment of service industry personnel. And then we're currently working with Big Brothers Big Sisters. Um, And so I think that's been a good way to get our brand out into the community. We're we're doing things like sponsoring the Capital 10,000, which is a big race that that occurs in Austin every year. We're, I mean, without question, spending more money on marketing today than we ever have before, but it's a necessity. I mean, we can't just rest yeah. on our laurels and expect people to show up. It's just, that doesn't work that way. But doing it in a non-traditional manner, I, I do, I hope people make note of that because we hear that from time to time and it does work. Attaching to community, attaching to interesting things, non-traditional locations, uh, soccer team sponsorship. Um, marketing just can't mean anymore throwing more money the way we used to. Let's just do radio more or buy more ads. So it was good that you kind of pointed that out. Hopefully people make a note of that because you do need to represent your brand today, but a lot differently than we did 20 years ago, for sure. Yeah. Although I don't hear you talking too much about you know, maybe five years ago, everybody was talking about their social media push, which I'm not saying isn't isn't important, but I I, I like your emphasis on community, on um, being there um, where people will see you physically. Although I've got to imagine, like every other concept, you, you need to have some presence on social. We hosted an influence dinner this week. So we had mm-hmm. a group of influencers come in and we debuted some of our um, LTOs that are coming out uh, mm-hmm. with them. And so I'm either a really young Gen Xer or a really old millennial. I'm not sure where I fall. Um, I, I, the idea of influencers being like this thing that that can move the needle on sales is really kind of like distasteful to me. But the reality is that's where we are. I mean, there are influencers out there that can really make a difference in your sales. And so we we don't ignore that, even if it, it's a little bit unpalatable to me. Mm-hmm. Can you, uh, the next thing I'd like to touch on is structure. Uh, how does, how's a successful restaurant company structure today? You know, you started, there were four units you were in, you're now 10 units going to be more. So along the way, how has you as the owner's role changed? And how have you had to develop some type of structure in order to make sure culinary, um, human resources, marketing, uh, you know, how, how do you do it with the supervision of operations and that kind of thing? Well, we run very lean. Um, and, and that's really a legacy of going through a period of time where we didn't have any money and we didn't have any choice but to run really lean. Um, but we've carried that through until today. Uh, the way our organization is structured is um, we have a board of directors, which um, I report to. Um, I have a number of direct reports. I have a VP of ops, VP of training, a chief human resources officer. And then, um, and this doesn't really describe what this gentleman does, but he's VP of systems and strategy. But what what that means is he's a jack of all trades and it's kind of the glue that holds everything together. Mm-hmm. Um, our training ops structure really kind of runs all of all of operations. Um, they are a very, very good team. Um, 
our VP of ops just celebrated 22 years, 23 years with us. I can't remember, nice. but most of our people are very tenured and they're also relatively young. I mean, we don't have anybody on our leadership team that's um, older than about 45, um, mm. yet they've been with us forever. Uh, I would be remiss not to talk about some of the organizational structure we put in place. I, I don't know if you're familiar with EOS or entrepreneurial organizational system. Yes. Um, or operational system, that's something that we've been using for a little bit of a little while now. And I cannot overstate how impactful that's been on our business. Um, We've been an EOS company. We have our own EOS implementer. Actually, our VP of training is our EOS implementer. And so we got him certified to do that. And just in terms of line of sight for where the organization is going, Understanding what organizational goals are and having those cascade down um, both departmentally and to the actual restaurant locations um, and creating a layer of accountability that we just didn't have before. It's been an extraordinarily impactful thing for our organization. And we couple that with something we we use and we didn't can't take credit for this, didn't make it up. Um, but we we've adopted a process called open book management. And so our financials are are open. I mean, we don't share pay information, but anybody in the organization can look at our PL and see where the money's going. Um, it, I think it's, if you're a server in a restaurant, you see a lot of money coming in the door. I don't think you necessarily realize how much money is turning right back around and going right back out the door. And so between EOS and open book management, we feel like our people are very financially literate, understand the levers that need to be pulled for profitability within the organization, uh, and they have a sense of ownership. Um, yeah. And I think at the end of the day, having that sense of ownership yeah. is really, really important. And so we don't hear that very often, though, do we? Uh, very, I, I like that. Yeah, and I think I think there's a tremendous success when. Uh, operators have a small team, managed lean, and have all employees knowledgeable of what it takes to operate the business. And so that open book management you mentioned should be a very positive thing for you, keeping staff engaged um, and helping them probably stay longer. From a human resources perspective, it, it it's been it's been shown that doing that changes the mindset of the employee from simply being an an asset to uh, an investor in the business. And uh, um, I've, I can think of one other operator doing that very successfully in terms of the open book. Um, they, they have a better appreciation. And I think, I like to think it makes them think about being more resourceful with the company resources to make sure that they're not creating waste or misuse of resources um, to keep those profits coming in. Well, we have, I mean, we have stories up and down the organization of frontline people coming up with, I mean, not just like thousand dollars worth of savings. I mean, tens of thousands of dollars worth of savings because they're on the front lines. They see things that I don't see. I mean, I sit in front of a computer all day long. Mm-hmm. I don't see all the salsa that's getting thrown out when guests order queso. Um, and so, I mean, we had somebody at one of our locations figure out that when our guests order queso and the spec calls for a little four ounce thing of salsa to come out with the queso, salsa is not getting getting eaten. It's getting mm-hmm. thrown out. And so just by making the switch of when a guest orders queso, asking the question of, would you like salsa with that? I mean, literally across 10 locations, 365 days a year, that's hundreds of thousands of dollars of savings. And that came from a server. That didn't come from right. me. It didn't come from a VP of ops. It yeah. came from somebody who's on the front lines. And it's amazing. What a great story. I mean, that it proves the point. If you feel like you um, have an investment in the business, you're going to share those with the uh, with your um, CEO. Yeah. So what's next? Uh, we don't get this opportunity to ask, uh, you know, what's next from somebody who's so well-established, but 40 years of operation, your well-established brand, you're working hard to keep it new, cool, and current. Uh, what's your short-term strategy? Well, I can tell you that our 10-year goal is to be in every major Texas market um, by 2032. Um, right now, there's real challenges around that. As, as you all and your listeners know, um, construction pricing is out of control. Uh, real estate costs are extraordinarily high. 
And so there are some challenges of, of entering into other markets, given some of the cost constraints we're facing right now. Um, my hope is that things will normalize here at some point and we can make the economics work. Yeah. Um, but the idea of doing a ground up location right now, I mean, we just don't have the resources to do that. I mean, if we're going to do, if we're going to do a new location, we're pretty much looking at second generation space and that's it right now because we can make the numbers on that work. We we can't make a greenfield site work. And, and even just like a finish out a white box. I mean, we just built a 4,400 square foot restaurant in San Antonio that was a finish out of an in cap. There's a $2 million price tag on it. And yeah. I mean, yeah. that's a lot of money for, for a little 4,500 square foot restaurant. So we have a goal, we have a vision. We're all rowing in the same direction, but we need for um, market conditions to change a little bit before we can really take big strides in that direction. Am Just I correct to- in hearing that your your operations are, are all corporate owned and operated uh, and that uh, franchising is, is at least not now part of the plan? No, it's not. I, I mean, franchising has its pluses and minuses, um, and we could have a whole other conversation about that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but for the time being, that's just not something that's really on our radar. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody, if you are in Austin or San Antonio, you need to go have breakfast or some other meal period at Kirby Lane. Is it just KirbyLane.com or where would people go to check out the menu or learn more about you? Uh, KirbyLaneCafe.com. Mm-hmm. There you go, everyone. We've been talking with Mason Ayer. Um, it may take a little while before he conquers every major metropolitan market. So that just means everyone's got to spend a little bit more time in Austin or San Antonio. That's not a problem. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Mason, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. We thank appreciate you. it. Join us again real soon on another Corner Booth. Thank you for joining us on the Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.